Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So we have an important debate on the table, which is the wintry precipitation that fell from the sky in Washington the past few days. Does that count as snow? Like, did we have a snowstorm? I had to shovel it. It counts to me. I don't think it was a snowstorm, but it was a it was a legitimate snowfall. Like it was enough to to give the dogs something to snuffle around in and Ben something to shovel. And yeah, also some ice too. Also, because of the fencing around the Capitol, um, this was the first year that there was not the elaborate lobbying campaign on Capitol Hill because Capitol Hill has the best sledding. And the Capitol Hill police are always very crabby about kids going to sled. And so our neighborhood listserv, the first snowfall is always like a buzz with who works for which member who can lobby the Capitol (laughs) Police to be like, think of the children, let them sled. You monster Washington thing ever. And like, who are the softies that are willing to intervene? Who isn't? And this year, we just we didn't even get to do it because there are giant fences everywhere. Wow! This year, if you sled, you get blown up. I will say though that on my Twitter feed last night, I saw the most awesome thing. I don't know whether it was in Washington or somewhere else, but there was a snowman, and in back of it a sculptor was making a giant snow tyrannosaurus chasing the snowman. (laughs) Okay, that's a legitimate snowfall. It looked fabulous. No question. All right. Well, if the kids had fun, then it counts. All right. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the impeachment part two edition. It should have like some subhead, like faster and furious, or is it part two or part de? No, it's part impeachment de? part de Groundhog Day. Impeachment part. <laughs> impeachment part de impeachment. <laughs> Oh my god, you guys! Re-impeachment. Are the re-impeachment. Yeah. The re-impeachment. Because it like is it like I'm trying to think of like desserts with peaches. Double impeachment. It's like an Ashley Judd. <laughs> the peach, the peach upside down cobbler. Yeah, Good there you God. go. I just I'm having trouble getting excited about it. I know we're gonna talk about it, but it's just it just feels like I don't know. I mean the it, spark goes after your first time, Shane. Right. You know? yeah, you'll always <laughs> it's remember hard your to first, recapture that right. first impeachment <laughs> feeling, you know. There's just something so special about it. Oh, you speak the truth, Susan. Oh, I am here in the uh the impeachment studio. Now it's not an impeachment studio. It's a very nice studio, the remote jungle studio, the patriotic closet from which I record. With my good friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi, Shane. The snow is mostly melted. Washington is Although DCPS did have a snow delay for virtual schooling. <laughs> Two hour delay. Everybody joining you know, from home. It's amazing. From their computers. Really... Two hours late. It's great. Good stuff. It's great. We're making it a snow day, damn it. <laughs> the wheels are working, guys. I think that's a basic morale need. Right. right. It's not a morale need for me, Tammy. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> 
<laughs> oh, boy. On the podcast this week, the Senate prepares to try former President Trump on charges of inciting a riot at the Capitol. A military coup in Myanmar deals a potentially crushing blow to democracy. And how do you solve a problem like Marjorie Taylor Greene? Oof. Other than the Jewish space laser? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Just wait hey. for that segment, man. The Jewish space laser has other priorities, okay? It's a long list, my friend. All right, let's start with the big news of next week, uh, impeachment. Uh, this week, we saw a document filed by House managers, who we can think of as the prosecution here, which was lengthy and detailed and heavy on facts and evidence and laid out an argument for how former President Trump incited the riot uh, on January 6th at the Capitol. The document filed by Trump's lawyers was not that. We won't spend a ton of time talking about the various arguments laid out in each, I'd refer you to an episode of the Lawfare podcast that's up today on Wednesday with Ben and David Priest and Quinta Jurassic on that, which was great at kind of digging into the weeds of each of them. Suffice to say, my favorite part real quick of the House of the Trump lawyers is that it's like the fonts are all janky. And as Quinta pointed out, it looks like somebody like jacked up the size of the periods to make the page count longer. <laughs> and also, they... Uh, misspelled United States of yes. America. United States. United States. States, which is yeah. great because they could, that brings us all together. It, yeah. it really is like your undergraduate rush. Yes. Fight. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a hot mess and it's embarrassing, which actually bears on the things that we're going to talk about. So, Ben, let's start with you. I'm interested in the national security and foreign policy complications of what's going to go down next week, namely that the Senate will almost certainly acquit Trump less on the grounds that he didn't incite an insurrection, but rather on a process argument that the House cannot impeach and try a former president, that this whole process is unconstitutional. We won't get into the legal arguments of that. There are other podcasts that have done that. There is a debate out there, we should say, about whether it is constitutional to try a former president. Legal lights, no less than Steve Vladek and Phil Bobbitt, have, have squared off on that on opposite sides. There are cases to be made for each. But my question is, given that we know the outcome here, and I don't think anyone is predicting that you know, 67 senators are going to vote to convict Trump. Does this invite future presidents to make similarly outrageous moves in their lame duck period between, you know, losing an election and being inaugurated? Is the argument here now the lesson that if you can get away with trying to overthrow an election that you just lost, why not go for it? So I don't think so. Although maybe. So the reasons to think not is that, you know, Trump here may have avoided crossing the lines of the criminal law, though he may not have. But it's hard to imagine, you know, planning something like this without violating the criminal law. And so I don't think, you know, any sane president would take an acquittal here as evidence that, oh, you know, you're kind of in the clear as long as you do it, you know, in the lame duck period, you're going to be fine. I think rather the better legal advice that a president would get under those circumstances are don't take a lot of comfort in this precedent. Uh, number one, 
the Senate isn't bound by its own precedents in impeachment, and if it wants to convict you for it, it will. And secondly, even if they don't, you still have whatever criminal law problems you're going to have. So I am not really worried about the precedential value of this, except in one sense, which is I do think the overriding precedent of the Trump era in impeachment is that if you keep your party in line, you're bulletproof. And that is a broad precedent from the Trump era that I think presidents of both parties are going to learn, and they're going to learn really well. And that denudes the impeachment power of a lot of its vitality. Um, And so I do think that is, this is an extreme example of that. But we saw that in the Mueller case where, you know, the House wouldn't even impeach him because it just kind of couldn't, couldn't get his act together to do it. And then we saw it in the Ukraine case. And now we see it in this extreme case here. And I think that's really the problem. Yeah, so I agree with all of that. And what I'm sort of, I agree with everything Ben just said, you know, most significantly with the idea that Trump is not going to be convicted um, and sort of barred from holding future office. And so we're going to have to sort of grapple with uh, the precise contours of that precedent. I I do wonder a little bit if this isn't a moment for Democrats potentially to to pivot or to clarify sort of the intention and audience here. Early in sort of the early days after January 6th, I, I think there was real hope that this might be a breaking point, that Republicans might actually seize on this as an opportunity to sort of rid themselves of Trump. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, messaged that. And and I don't think there's any cause for optimism anymore. So whether or not that's because there was momentum that went away, um, whether it's and people changed their minds or whether or not this was sort of a, a calculated move by McConnell to really have the threat of impeachment hanging over Trump in the final days in order to prevent him from issuing mass pardons or engaging in sort of other misconduct, whatever it was that sort of vanished. Um, And so now I think um, sort of Democrats that are pushing this have to think about uh, what to do with the tools that are available to them and sort of the political environment that's available to them. Um, And one thing that um, I think was sort of a hallmark of the Trump era um, is that it's always worse than it seems. And here in particular, the things we have learned, um, even just a few days ago, Axios had this story of just an absolutely insane meeting that took place in the Oval Office. Um, uh, you know, in, in December, in which the former CEO of Overstock and Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell are there and pushing Trump on just these absolutely deranged conspiracy theories and uh, White House, uh, the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone and, and others, I'm sort of realizing that Donald Trump was actually entertaining this stuff, taking it seriously. Um, you know, these these really sort of intense confrontations that occurred. And um, I think one thing that, that we're really learning is that this was not just Trump tweeting. This was not just rhetoric or, or the speeches that we saw. This was the president of the United States legitimately, sincerely, and to the absolute best of his ability, attempting to use all of the powers of his office in order to overturn a a legitimate, democratically conducted election. Like, that's actually what happened here. And this all this stuff was going on behind the scenes. All of these people were involved in it. And that is you know, sort of the idea that our democracy was actually at this precipice in a sense that, you know, 
whatever you, you can accuse people of Trump derangement syndrome. And is he a fascist? And what kind of word should we use? I mean, this is it. This is like the clearest sort of threat. And for some reason, that hasn't fully sort of seeped in with the public. And so sort of the, the gravity of what occurred, um, is this a moment to really, really tell the story of this period? The New York Times has um, uh, sort of a, a deep dive on kind of the, you know, the 72 days that, it, that were involved in this effort, all of the various parts of it. Um, you know, so sort of telling that story, hammering home the gravity and s- sort of seriousness of it for the American people. Also sort of, and we've talked about it on, on, the, on the podcast in the past, um, sort of getting people to understand how close this came to being a mass casualty event in the United States Congress. This was a legitimately incredibly dangerous thing that happened. These were not just a bunch of sort of hooligans running around. There were people who really, really intended to harm members of Congress and they came really, really close and we kind of got lucky. And so, you know, maybe the the point here is not to um, even engage with the procedural questions, but in, instead try to use this story as just the last best chance to explain to the country that we have to have pre-political commitments here to the basic structures, the basic basic rules here. And if, if we don't have that, we're lost. I don't know that that's where they're headed at this point, but it, it does feel a little sort of directionless to me about kind of what, what's the goal. Tammy. Yeah, I, I think once again, and we've, you know, we talked about this with respect to the Ukraine impeachment. Impeachment is not a great tool for the objectives that Susan laid out. And indeed, this impeachment, the way it's been done and the timing of it is particularly ill-suited, I think, to achieve that goal. And, you know, it's it's just one count. It's just about inciting the insurrection on January 6th. It doesn't go into the full story of all of the denialism and attempts to undermine the election outcome. You want to impeach him for that, that would be great. That's not what he's been impeached for. You know, using the powers of his office to attempt to overthrow a democratic election is not what he's been impeached for. He's been impeached for inciting a riot. And I think that, you know, yes, it had, there was a push to do it immediately because of the fear of what he would do before Inauguration Day. But then immediately there was the tension of how Biden would get other things done while this impeachment was going on. And so the air is out of the balloon on the Republican side and Trumpists have had a chance to rally the forces. So that's the first point I want to make. This is not going to get accountability as an outcome, and it's not even going to get a full story for the American people as an outcome. Now, how much does that matter? to me, is an interesting question. Because number one, Nancy Pelosi has made pretty clear, I think, that that she and at least the House Democratic Caucus want to do a special commission on the January 6th insurrection. So all of Susan's points about how this was a real terrorist attack and how close it came to being a mass casualty event and what its roots are in the extreme right and what's the relationship between politicians in American public life and the people who did this all of that will that story will get told through a commission, which is frankly, I think, a better way for that public education to happen. It's also, you know, how much does it matter to the Biden administration, to the new Congress's ability to get stuff done in the world? You know, Shane, you said you want to talk about the national security implications. And interestingly, you know, I think for most of our fellow democracies around the world, 
the insurrection itself was a heart-stopping moment, but they saw the Congress of the United States immediately go back into session and certify the election. And that was a sign of strength and resilience that I have personally heard from folks abroad was incredibly meaningful. I don't think that the impeachment itself is seen by other countries as a test of our democratic health. I think the test of democratic health is what happens in the Republican Party, no matter what happens to impeachment. That's what they're going to be watching. Many of them are dealing with very extreme political movements that are asserting themselves in electoral politics also. So we're watching them, they're watching us, and we're all trying to figure out how to beat this stuff back. Just a quick sort of comment, because I, I think everything Tammy said is right. I, I think one piece, though, that's missing of sort of discussing the, the timing and the oddity of the timing is um, the Republicans that are claiming uh, sort of the procedural defense of not being willing to impeach a, a former president. They were the people who delayed sort of commencing the Senate trial, right? That there was immediate calls in, in the immediate aftermath of, of the sort of January 6th events to move to the impeachment of proceedings. Course, quickly. Because they knew it would advantage their side of the argument. Right. But this idea, this the the um, the idea that no one's sort of calling out this like this incredible cynicism of you were the ones that sort of delayed this trial to start and now allowing them to like wrap themselves in this procedural cloak. It's I know there's like a million points of hypocrisy to point out, but that's one part that I'm just like, hey, am I going crazy here? It just it, it strikes me as insane that uh, they aren't getting more pushback on it. So I I do think that there is in the space between. Susan's account and Tammy's, a really important strategic question for the impeachment managers. So the way the article is drafted and the way the brief is written, you could imagine the impeachment managers saying, we are going to start the day after the election and we are going to put on witnesses that take you through the entire day including after the president gives that speech and show how he deliberately didn't take steps to stop the thing once it had started and treat it like a real trial where you're actually, you know, bringing in Stephen Miller and, uh, you know, to talk about what the president was doing that day, bringing in Mark Meadows, calling the senators whom the president called that day to, you know, during the during the riot you could also imagine, based on the same document and the same briefs, you know, this being much more like the trial a year ago. Jamie Raskin gives a speech, the other side gives a speech, and then we have some votes, right? And whether it serves as a real accountability exercise or just a set of political posturing really depends, I think, on how the managers decide to present their case and whether the Democrats who have the votes to allow them to present a case, whether they use their power to do that or whether, uh, as Tamara was saying, they you know, succumb to competing priorities of want to get, wanting to get a whole lot of legislation done. And I think we can't, we don't know yet which direction it's heading. And I think it's a big open question. Well, while we are debating whether democracy is 
under threat in this country, um, an actual coup has occurred in Myanmar. For those who have been watching the news, uh, you know probably the broad strokes, but uh, the democratic government there was overthrown by the military. Uh, the leader of Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, kind of a world famous activist, uh, symbol of democracy and you know inspiration for people across the around the world, or at least she used to be. Well, we'll get into that. Yes, uh, she, that, that's that's a very fair point that her image has been challenged, shall we say, in recent years. But obviously the history of Myanmar in terms of emerging from a military dictatorship into a democracy is, you know, largely told through through her story. She is now in jail, I believe, on some charge of illegally importing walkie-talkies. Yeah. Heinous crime. Heinous crime. So Tammy, kick us off here. Give us the quick sketch of the major players involved in this and remind us about that path that uh, Myanmar took as it evolved from a military dictatorship into a democracy and maybe just briefly touch on the ways that, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi has changed in the eyes of a lot of people in the world. Yeah, well, so the first thing is to acknowledge up front that Myanmar never really achieved full parliamentary democracy. It was in the middle of uh, what we would call in political science a pacted transition, a negotiated agreement between the military and uh, democratic movements, especially the one led by Aung San Suu Kyi, who spent 15 years under house arrest while the military was ruling the country. So this agreement was first reached in 2011. Aung San Suu Kyi was uh, released from house arrest. They had their first parliamentary elections in 2015. And the precipitating event for this coup was the most recent elections that happened just in November. But even through this period, the military maintained control over certain business conglomerates. It had the right to appoint ministers that related to national security and, and police. And the general, who was in a way on San Suu Kyi's partner or counterpart, was due to retire this coming summer, mandatory retirement age of 65. And so between the elections in November, which on San Suu Kyi's movement won overwhelmingly, and his retirement this summer, the military clearly felt that their ability to protect their own interests in this pacted transition was under threat and that they just couldn't afford to go forward. And, you know, unfortunately, that is not an uncommon outcome in these cases where the military, you know, makes some negotiation with democratic forces to share power. It also seems as though the military kind of miscalculated. Uh, that they thought they would win enough seats or that their allied forces would win enough seats in parliament that they would still have a stake in the parliamentary democracy that was established. And instead, uh, they were facing a parliament that was going to rewrite the constitution and remove a lot of their prerogatives. So that's why this was kind of a make or break moment for them. It is also an important test for the Biden administration and a blow to something that was an achievement of the Obama administration. When in 2011, this uh, new constitution was agreed to, Obama returned a U.S. ambassador to Burma for the first time in 20 something years. And now under standing U.S. legislation, the Biden administration is required having agreed that this is a coup, which frankly, it would be ridiculous for them not to acknowledge it's a coup. 
they're now required to review and possibly halt all U.S. assistance, um, which could include the assistance to Burmese civil society and, and the democratic activists in the country. So it's really like, it's not just a foreign policy blow. It's also like, oh man, how do you navigate trying to support democracy in such challenged circumstances? Susan. Yeah, I think this is it's a it's a good illustration of sort of getting competent, experienced people back in the building uh, still leaves you with really, really challenging questions, right? And so, you know, Tony Blinken, someone who's hugely knowledgeable on these issues, made multiple trips to Burma uh, as Deputy Secretary of State and was sort of a, a key person, um, uh, you know, on sort of the original, trans, uh, you know, sort of transition in, in 2010 and 2011, now the Secretary of State. And this question of sort of how, you know, obviously the, the, the interesting legal question is whether or not they were going to formally designate it. They think Tammy's right that that wasn't really a significant question. And now the question is sort of uh, how you slice up the aid. So the, you know, the, the law requires that you not give uh, foreign assistance that flows through the government. There are sort of channels to, uh, to attempt to kind of give directly to, you know, civilians. Um, but I, I think that sort of gets at an end. And Tammy, I, I guess this is the form of a question to you. We already have sanctions against the military leadership. Mo- most of this foreign aid and then the significant foreign aid we care about is going directly to population assistance. The population is the principal victim of this. We have this new experienced administration that I think is well-intentioned, but what even tools are available? I mean, if you're going to rank sort of cut aid and, and ratchet up sanctions, how do you do that without impacting the civilian population? And other than sort of cutting diplomatic ties or potentially, I guess, sort of making common cause with China on it and seeing if there's sort of there's, there's leverage points there, like what tools are even available, you know, just to sort of move forward here? Yeah, I I think this is a good illustration of the limits of economic sanctions as a policy tool. Um, and I think that the, the policy challenge is not only, you know, what tools do you have to leverage the military? And there, I think it's mostly about kind of international engagement and Myanmar's place on the world stage. So you need to work with the Europeans, you need to work with others. China has been very, very careful in its response to these events. Unsurprisingly, the military um, and China have cooperated for a long, long time. And so there's also like, how does the United States look at this particular crisis in this particular country in light of its broader confrontation with China? You know, it doesn't want to push the military all the way into the arms, back into the arms of the Chinese after spending a couple of decades trying to kind of wean them away. And so that's a challenge as well. The other challenge is on San Suu Kyi herself, who's, you know, clearly a victim here um, in the sense that she was placed under arrest along with all the other civilian leaders as part of the coup. And her party's electoral victory has now been overturned. But she wasn't exactly a paragon of democracy and human rights in her role as political leader. She went to the International Criminal Court and defended her government against charges of uh, genocide against the Rohingya minority, Muslim minority, who have been pushed out of the country in the hundreds of thousands and are living as refugees. So, you know, it's tough for the United States to sort of zoom in on her on her side of this conflict, both because she's tainted and because of the broader interests that we have to balance. And so, you know, the minimum you do 
is you try and find the truly democratic elements of uh, Burmese civil society and give them support. You speak up uh, against military dictatorship and you say people have a right to protest, you know, but that's that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I think the point about the diminished uh, luster of Aung San Suu Kyi is an important one because, you know, for many years or really the better part of two decades, that was the thing that caused the international community to care a lot about Myanmar was that this incredibly brave woman was sort of single-handedly I think it was from 1990 on, it was an incredibly long time. She is sitting on by the lake in in this house that is, you know, crumbling around her with one aid or something and, you know, under house arrest. And it was this, you know, this really awesome Mandela-like, I mean, she wasn't in Robbins Island prison, but she was in, you know, she was incredibly isolated and, uh, the regime was this weird combination of very brutal and bizarrely incompetent. Remember, this is the regime that at one point changed Myanmar's currency to be in base nine because of some astrological thing. And they thus tanked the entire economy because nobody could figure it out. Re- uh, reminiscent of a certain Woody Allen movie about military dictators. Exactly. And meanwhile, she, who had won this overwhelming election in, in, you know, 89 or 90, is sitting there as a symbol. And this is this incredibly powerful thing over a long period of time. She won the Nobel Peace Prize, et cetera, et cetera. There, she's never going to be able to recreate this. And, you know, she is now thought of as one of these people who is a worldwide disappointment and, you know, went from being a symbol of everything that the human rights community cares about to being, you know, part of an oppressive uh, force against a disadvantaged religious minority that uh, was actually living peaceably. Um, And so I, I, I think it's going to be very hard to get the international community to care about Myanmar the way it once did. And, you know, I'm, I feel bad about that because the average Burmese democracy loving citizen didn't do anything to deserve this. But I do, I do think that that momentum and that sense of this as an important, as an important democracy struggle is going to be very hard to reestablish. Just to underscore that with just two thoughts. I mean, A, you're you're totally right about the way she was built up into, you know, a legend in her own time. And it really underscores the danger of turning people into heroes because they will disappoint you. Warning to Alexei Navalny. Yeah, I mean, seriously. Well, Alexei Navalny has issues in his past. I mean, no one is perfect. Everyone is complicated. I mean, no one is a saint. But it also really, just in a disappointing way, underscores just how kind of thin and conditional and like pop culture inflected even international political support can be for a cause if like really and i think you're right ben if the international community needs like a pure as the driven snow Aung san suu Kyi on which to hang you know 
an ounce of giving a damn about democracy in Burma, then we have a real problem. And this is the, it's like the Hollywoodization of foreign policy. Susan, you had a quick point, but Tammy, do you want to make one real, real fast first? Well, just on the, on that particular point, I, I think you're right that the Hollywoodization of foreign policy is a danger, but the over-personalization of foreign policy is a problem across the board. It's not just about democracy activists or dissidents. Um, you know, it's also about Gorbachev and Yeltsin. And I looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul, right? So leaders do this too. It's not just a problem with public opinion. Susan. Look, you know, not to, um, there's no way to Pollyanna this situation, but I I do think there's a different narrative we could tell about the attention that might happen right now, which is that um, there is sort of an ongoing genocide happening and reports of of rape and starvation and these horrible human rights atrocities um, that got a lot of attention for sort of a discrete period of time and then the world kind of moved on. Um, So I I also think there is overwhelmingly cause for pessimism, but um, but maybe a hope that this event actually will be um, sort of a, a catalyst to get attention back on, you know, th- this ongoing, you know, really significant human rights issue. And so, again, it's, you're right about the sort of the personalization, all these other things, but but maybe, uh, you know, the, the very small silver lining is this issue that sort of rose in the news and then kind of went away, you know, we'll be back in the headlines and, and hopefully get more attention. Right. Well, speaking of people who are getting a lot of attention, maybe too much, and it's even with some... <laughs> Nice segue, Shane Harris. I mean, I have to admit, it's even with some trepidation that I even utter this woman's name. But Marjorie Taylor Greene. Pew, 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 pew. Yeah. Wow. If you, in case you've been living, uh, you know, under the shadow of a Jewish space laser. Uh, <laughs> Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, is a freshman member of Congress from a district in the northwest of Georgia, which I happen to know some things about. Maybe I'll talk about in a few in a little bit. Is I won't say she is. It is just coming to the public's attention that she believes in truly lunatic conspiracy theories. Like, I mean, to even say that they are baseless ideas is underselling how completely off the map (laughs) this person is. And and truly to the point where you would have a legitimate basis for questioning whether she is mentally ill. But we won't try and get into that diagnosing her has uh, both said and re- and lately had people have resurfaced comments of hers from the past two years, including uh, her belief that the Sandy Hook shooting was staged, that it didn't happen. Uh, or was it the Parkland shooting that was fake? One of them was both. fake. Both faked. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, both faked. Um, a video of her um, harassing on the street outside the Capitol, David Hogue, who was one of the survivors of the Parkland shooting, whose classmates were murdered and became an activist for for gun control uh, and gun policy. And the most, the one that's probably gotten the most attention is the, uh, her Facebook post positing that the campfire, uh, this hugely devastating fire in 2018 in California that killed many people and caused enormous amounts of property damage was started by a conspiracy between the California electric company, PG&E and the Rothschilds who like, Red flag, when the Rothschilds show up, it's basically like the lizard people and the Illuminati and the Trilateral Commission, right? It's sort of like all of the Batman villains with a space-based laser started the fire. I want to interject, listeners. This is a man who believes in space aliens who's telling Hey, hey, I'm just saying, listen, I, we, can, we can go rounds, me and MTG, on that one. Uh- I'm just waiting for Ben to proclaim whether or not Jewish space laser is a great band name. 
That's actually an interesting question. We'll, we'll, we'll return to that. So, I mean, basically, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, by the way, I should note, you know, we, maybe we'll get even into her own background, but, you know, is a very, she's an opportunistic politician, okay? She ran in a district that she is not from. Uh, whether that matters to people, it certainly apparently did not matter to her voters, but has now become this enormous headache for uh, her fellow Republicans. The uh, House Democrats have just announced they're going to vote on Thursday to strip her of her committee assignments because Republicans wouldn't do it themselves. One of her committee's assignments being the Education Committee. Right, okay. because you got to teach the kids about the laser that's going to create forest fires. Right, so they can use in their school shootings that don't happen. Right. Um, ben, I want to start with you on this. We've talked a lot on the podcast about the corrosive effect of politicians lying to voters, the, the effect that has on the rule of law and democracy. If we take Trump as sort of the model of that dangerous politician, certainly not the original, right? He's not the progenitor, but the most recent model of that, particularly in the social media age. How would you compare Marjorie Taylor Greene to him and what risk that she poses with the outright lies and absurdities that she is constantly spouting? So she clearly has two important features that a Trump has. One is charisma. Uh, and this is the thing that in populist politicians is that certain je ne sais quoi that you can't teach, you can't, you can't create it if you don't have it. See Josh Hawley. She's got it. And there's something mesmerizing about her to large numbers of people. Um, she's also got the deranged self-involvement narcissism thing. I think she's crazier than Donald Trump, not in a crazy like a fox way, but in a, uh, you know, Trump has always known to keep his distance except tactically from things like QAnon. He never really endorsed it except when asked to say, well, they do seem to like me, right? And he, good government. Yeah. Right. And he like he was he, he was more careful about that sort of thing than she has been. And of course, he was more established. So, you know, people knew him for other things. And, you know, he was strategically embracing conspiracy theories uh, and cynically like the birtherism stuff. But he was doing it as a known figure. Right. He was known for other things. She is known for this, and I think that's actually a, a danger for her that, like, once you uh, strip away the conspiracy theory aspect, there's nothing else left of her, right? That's, that's all there is. And so I think that makes it easier for people like Mitch McConnell, if not Kevin McCarthy, to say, uh, there's nothing in this for us. Uh, but that said, we should not understate the danger of people like her. If the last five years have taught us anything, it's that, you know, it sounds crazy on Tuesday and it's completely mainstream on Thursday. And so I think you have to take it seriously. Uh, and I, for one, was delighted to learn about the Jewish space laser because I think, you know, keeping us safe from people like Marjorie Taylor Greene is a job for something big and powerful and with a lot of energy. <laughs> oh, Susan, and then Tammy. 
I mean, look, this is the most predictable thing in the world. Um, so uh, reportedly, um, members of House Republican leadership um, were very concerned in the days before uh, Green's election. Um, hey, this person might end up becoming a problem for us. You know, should we distance ourselves? Should we try and um, ensure that she doesn't win the election? Right. Is it is this really somebody that we want to have in Congress? Um, and what did they decide to do? Like the brave thing and give up a seat and harm their own sort of immediate political interest? No, they were like, eh, it'll be fine. Let's just kind of turn a blind eye to it, see what happens and uh, and, and uh, hold on to a seat. Um, lo and behold, um, she's now become a you know really significant liability for them. Um, and I think it's a really difficult question. How do House Republicans and the Republican Party in general deal with her? Um, so one is sort of, are they going to attempt to accommodate her um, and sort of minimize her policy influence, but basically let let her be a part of the party. So I, I think that's what Kevin McCarthy is sort of signaling, right? Saying that he's going to strip, uh, he, he favors stripping her of one committee assignment, but not another committee assignment, right? The, the purpose here um, of stripping someone's committee assignments is a sort of political exile to allow them to remain in the House because they were elected, um, but to strip them of all their power so they can't win re-election. So this is what they did to Steve King following sort of new revelations of his, you know, racist statements. Of course, Steve King um, uh, has a long record of, uh, of demonstrated racism. Um, the Republicans suddenly became really concerned about it after Steve King came really, really close to losing uh, his seat in 2018 and became an electoral liability for them. Um, so one path is that the House of Republicans attempt to kind of uh, limit the damage and allow this sort of ongoing liability to continue. And I think there's a, there's a good chance that they will do that up and until she becomes precisely the kind of electoral liability uh, that Steve King did. And, and then they might try and sort of um, dump her overboard. But there actually is an, an even sort of more complicated question. Um, if somebody like McCarthy actually does want to get rid of her and sort of does want to push her to the margins of the party. And that's that stripping people of committee assignments, kind of the, the you know, the, the common method here um, matters whenever you you have members who care about policymaking in some way, right? They care about delivering to their constituents. This new crop of um, sort of QAnon members that have joined are not interested in legislation. So one sort of perfectly emblematic headline was um, Madison Crawthorn, who's sort of, uh, you know, a similar type of uh, freshman Republican, um, announced that he wasn't staffing his office. He was only staffing his office with an eye towards communications, like external communications, not towards policy, not towards constituent services. And so, you know, are these tools effective whenever you have members who actually don't care about wielding sort of power on the committees? They actually care about sort of this external performative thing. And, and how do you, whenever you have those types of figures who are leaning into this, who are fundraising off of it. Like, what can you even do to sort of bring them to heal? Because at this point, having let her inside the, the building, let her inside the house, I don't know that the traditional tools even would work. I think she might be perfectly happy to be a member without committee assignments, going on crazy Newsmax TV shows and, and spewing conspiracy theories and sort of using it as a as just a, a platform for, for disinformation and conspiracy theories. Yeah, it's a martyrdom in a way. Tammy? Yeah, so I that's an interesting point to make. And I think it, it is also a question about the Republican Party and, and the future of electoral politics, because like that was AOC when she was first elected two years ago, right? Incredible social media profile, like anything she said would become the orthodoxy among her national constituency overnight. 
um, national politicians uh, of her own party, therefore, you know, felt like they had to defend her and definitely not cross her. She was raising money for other candidates that seemed to give her a lot of heft. Here we are, you know, a few years later, and I think that we see that she has learned and her leader, her party leadership has figured out how to integrate what she represents into the party in a way that diminishes her own personal influence. And she has also understood that being a celebrity politician brings you a certain amount. It lets you raise money. It gives you a media profile, but it doesn't let you get stuff done. And at the end of the day, you get reelected by your district, not by anybody else. Newsmax does not get you reelected. And it's a broader problem that the Republican Party has failed to impose this kind of party discipline on its members for a long time. And that's one way we ended up with Donald Trump in the first place. But it's an open question to me whether they are going to, in this case, seek to use the tools they have to impose party discipline. And maybe a couple of years from now, she'll just look like another kook or maybe she won't win re-election. But what I would say is, number one, this isn't a case of, well, you know, she's a kook, but we need to worry about it because what's kooky today is mainstream tomorrow. This is already mainstream in the Republican Party. This is already something that is believed by millions of people. It is dangerous. So I like I can laugh about the Jewish space laser, but I'm not really laughing. I'm actually horrified and terrified. Also, I think if you strip away the crazy conspiracy theories, what's left, Ben asked, I think what's left is absolute loyalty to Donald Trump. That's what she ran on. She didn't run on the conspiracy theories. She ran on supporting Donald Trump and she won. And so I think, you know, that's what the party needs to figure out is do they want to marginalize that? And I still believe that they should and they do, but I'm not sure they will. And to your point, Susan, about, you know, what can be done. I mean, and I think Tammy's pointing this out too. Marjorie Taylor Greene's constituents are going to expect her to deliver for them. And I've spent a fair amount of time in her district and have family who used to live there. And from the report, I can tell you from personal experience and from reporting that the Atlanta Journal of Constitution has done, one of the things that it appears that people in her district expect is for her to remove Joe Biden from office. She made a big deal about her first day in office filing an article of impeachment against President Biden which will obviously go nowhere. She is the sole signatory to this proposal. And when she's gone back for a town hall meeting in her district, this is what people are asking her about. I mean, it sounds like QAnon, like when is the plan happening? Okay, it didn't happen on January 20th. And like, is Trump still the president? What's the plan? Is Trump still the president? When is Biden going out? I mean, you know, the people who live in that, and I'm not saying all of them, but like the, the really hardcore supporters of Marjorie Taylor Greene, have bought in to the lie that she's selling them, which is that there's going to be some kind of movement to like, A, get rid of Joe Biden and B, possibly reinstall Donald Trump. And when she obviously doesn't deliver on that, uh, I do wonder whether or not she'll be held accountable for that by her constituents who will maybe even see her as somebody who is an outsider, which she is. She is not socioeconomically of the profile of people who live in that district. But there is a, a, a 
a kind of animosity in a white hot heat of anger towards Democrats in that district <laughs> that she capitalized on and has really exploited. So maybe in the end, I mean, it's it's not the conspiracy theories that that do her in, but the fact that she, you know, didn't impeach and remove Joe Biden like she promised. We'll see. Got your work cut out for you, Congresswoman. <laughs> I still want to debate on the space aliens. Yeah, well, you know, maybe her space laser can try to shoot my aliens and then we can start a war. Pew, pew, pew. Trust the plan. Uh, let's go to object lessons. Susan, you go first. Yeah, so I have um, a really sad object lesson today. Um, so listeners may have seen this in the headlines um, that yesterday morning, two FBI agents, Daniel Alfin and Laura Schwarzenberger, um, were both killed while serving a search warrant um, in Florida. Um, so they were both members of the Violent Crimes Against Children section. Um, I didn't know Laura, um, but I did uh, cross paths with Dan professionally. He was the lead case agent on a very famous and, and prominent case called Playpen, it, an investigator of child exploitation um, and violent crimes against children cases. Um, They were executing a search warrant in one of these cases um, whenever they were killed. Yeah, so um, my object lesson um, is uh, is really just wanting people to be um, aware of the work that they did um, and and sort of that Dan in particular did. Uh, he was a, a really wonderful person. Um, he was only 36 years old. And child exploitation investigations are some of the most difficult, hardest work in the entire world. Um, it's a field in which a lot of people just can't stare directly into that kind of evil. It's just, it's too difficult. Um, you know, members of Congress will ask, uh, you know, ask, these uh, sort of prosecutors and agents to stop briefings in the middle because like you just literally can't hear about what's happening anymore. Um, and there's these group of people who wake up every day and look directly into it. Um, and like one by one, they save kids. Um, in the playpen case, um, they were able to rescue 300 kids from hands-on abuse. Like Dan did that because he did this work, because he cared about it, um, because he cared about other people. Um, and so uh, just, you know, people should uh, should think about that and, and think not just about the extraordinary sacrifice that they made in giving their lives uh, yesterday. Um, also, three of their uh, fellow agents were uh, were wounded, um, some of them critically. And so, um, you know, hoping that they uh, that they recover. But also I'm um, just thinking about um, the, the sacrifice and, and life of service uh, that they had and, and their record. And, um, you know, these are two people who changed the world literally for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children. Um, and so, you know, they're just um, uh, are going to be missed. I, I feel incredibly fortunate to, to have been able to, um, you know, sort of cross paths with Dan, even, uh, you know, in, in this small minor way. Um, and, uh, you know, just just hope that people will, um, you know, think about their legacy, think about the importance of that work and um, maybe be a little bit braver and not um, needing to turn away from from really difficult things because um, the agents and prosecutors who do that work, um, they need more support and, and they need more people to, to be involved in that particular fight. Well said. Uh, ben. So my object lesson is the Rothschild family. And I bring it up for a very particular reason. So people uh, have a sense of the Rothschild family through these crazy conspiracy theories, but it's actually a real family. And the particular conspiracy theory that they are the sort of evil controllers of everything actually dates back more than 200 years. It goes back to the Battle of Waterloo when the then uh, patriarch of this European banking family, 
was accused without any evidence of having somehow gotten information from Belgium, the battlefield, to London, where his traders dumped a whole lot of stocks faster than anybody else could. And there was no element of truth to any of this. Rothschild was, in fact, nowhere near the Battle of Waterloo, and his traders didn't dump stocks. Uh, but this set a, a pattern in which the hand of the Rothschild family was said to be behind many, many things that happened over the subsequent couple of centuries and became a sort of template for, you know, the evil international financial Jew that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene are referring to when they talk about, you know, I mean, we joke about Jewish space lasers, but when they talk about the sort of evil thing that happens, that there's some great controlling hand behind. Sometimes in the modern era, the name Rothschild gets replaced with George Soros, but it's, um, it's actually a very old conspiracy theory, and it has been kind of continuously in circulation, generally by people who have no idea that there's nothing original about it, uh, for more than 200 years now. And the reason I mention it uh, is not just that it's an interesting bit of conspiracy theory lore, which it is, but because it um, shows that once you establish these things in people's minds, they actually take on an archetypal life of their own, and they come back and come back and come back and come back, and they circulate essentially forever. So what sounds like a crazy, nutty, you know, the QAnon stuff, it gets imprinted. And once it's imprinted, it stays in the cycle. And these things have a way of just repeating and churning over very long periods of time. And so my point is, you know, what is a lizard person today is a Rothschild tomorrow. These things have a lot of staying power. and. Uh, they're worth taking a little bit more seriously than the jokes that they deserve to turn into because they're so freaking stupid would lead you to think. Yeah, <clears throat> they're, they're memes for a reason, right? Um, so my object lesson, it's a twofer this week. I have two, count them, two uh, TV show recommendations for Ooh. you. Yeah, they go together for reasons that will become immediately apparent. Uh, they're both on Netflix. The first is this four-part documentary called The Night Stalker. Oh, on, yeah, I watched that. On Richard Again. Ramirez, right, which is he was a notorious serial killer in Los Angeles in the, I guess, late 70s, early 80s, into the early 80s. Um, and the second is one called The Ripper, which is about a serial killer in Yorkshire, in England, in the 1970s, who was basically became like the 20th century version of Jack the Ripper. In fact, he was called the Yorkshire Ripper. So also a four-part series, you know, both about the murderers, both about the cops, et cetera. I recommend them as a companion piece because one of them is a story about very good police work and one of them is a story about very bad police work. And I'm not going to tell you which one. Um, watch them in either order and it will become obvious to you which uh, which one is the good and which one is the bad. Aside from being really entertaining and just, I think, I find, you know, 
serial killer stories like everyone else does obviously creepy and scary they're also horrible both shows do a really good job of understanding the victims and not being exploitative which is something it's really important to do in stories like this so it's not just about the creepy crawly feeling of the killer it's about who these people were which goes exactly to the point of the bad and the good police work so listeners will appreciate that um watch them together not with the kids it's not family <laughs> fair not fun for left sleeping afterwards i it's a funny thing though i can sleep like horror movies don't keep me awake it's uh yeah that's a blessing yeah the things that would like keep me like a leg awake at night would be like movies about shipwrecks <laughs> like titanic like gives me panic <laughs> attacks get out it does it's seriously even like as a child like the fear of like being like lost at sea oh my god The only thing that made me uh, blanch about Titanic is that it went on for so darn long and it was so bad that I thought I might like expire before the end. So wait, while we're doing movie recommendations, Uh come on, wrap it up. (laughs) Yeah. While we're doing movie recommendations on the slate political gab fest, Mm -hmm. both uh, John Dickerson and David Plotz rhapsodized about this film in and of itself And on their recommendation, I watched it with Tamara the other evening. And I have to say, I haven't stopped thinking about it since. It is on Hulu. I don't want to say anything about it. It's a one-man show. It's just a monologue. It is really worth your time. What's it called? In and of itself. Oh, it's called In and of Itself. So I watched it as well. And We'll make this like a special object lesson next time. I like I didn't I don't really get the hype. Yeah, I'm with Susan. It didn't stick with me. It was me. fine. It was fine. It but I wonder if it's a gender thing, actually. Wow. But we can talk about it. Well, hopefully this podcast has stuck with you. And you stuck with it right here <laughs> till the very end. National Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find, I don't, do we have any uh, space laser themed merchandise in the Rational Security store? No, we discriminate against Jews. Oh, right. Of course. (laughs) I forgot. I forgot. All of our space lasers are Goyim. Goyim. (laughs) We're mad because the Rothschild tried to hack our, our accounts and take all of our money. You can find all the Lawfare and Rational Security merch at rothschildinc.com you can follow us on twitter at ratl security you can find us as well on facebook we're still there although i find myself increasingly less on facebook these days uh i'm going to redownload the podcast please be sure and leave us a rating or review we appreciate it it helps us out a lot our audio engineer this week was zachary frank from goat rodeo the show is produced and edited by jen patia howell uh music this week by marjorie taylor green of course with her off-key rendition of mel brooks's classic jews in space <laughs> excellent right very off key yes very off very key. flat or maybe it's sharp <laughs> flat flat uh sophia yang could do a much more credible job and probably in congress as well uh on behalf of my good friends ben wittis tamara kaufman wittis and susan hennessy i'm shane harris we'll talk to you next week bye-bye A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.